Hi and welcome to the first ever episode of Sidegeist. I'm Priha Sayed and with me today, joining live from Washington DC, is Rija Yunus. Rija is a research enthusiast and policy analyst, while I am an author. And together, we have brought an incredible and engaging podcast for you today. Listen ahead, but here's a little something about our organization first. The Zenulabin Collective for Research and Discourse is a platform for scholastic individuals to come together in their love for scholarship and help just about everyone to grow in the process. At ZCRD, we pioneer the novel culture of casual scholastic engagement. Welcome to the collective. Hello all and welcome to ZCRD's I'd like to welcome our guest for today's podcast, Rija Yunus. Hi, Rija. Hi, Priya. This is very exciting. Oh, I'm so happy to host you on the first episode. Thank you for bringing your research to ZCRD. Well, thank you for having me. I'm honored to be your first guest and you're totally selling yourself short with that intro. I've known you for many, many years and Priya is just one of the most amazing and inquisitive minds a person could come across. I'm so happy that everyone else will get a chance to hear your brilliance at work. And honestly, I can't wait to hear the podcast that ZCRD will put out. As always, you're ever so kind to me. Let's continue this over WhatsApp after this. <laughs> Definitely. First things first, how about you start by giving us the title of your research and the platform on which you've published it? Sure. So the title of the piece is Two Decades After Cargill, Lasting Legacies for Pakistan. And I wrote it for the National Security Section of South Asian Voices, which is a policy platform and online journal run by the Stimson Center in Washington, D.C. That's really impressive. And so what about this topic drove you to research it and write on it to this extent? Well, a couple of things, really. First, I wrote this piece on the 20th anniversary of Cargill, which was last year. It isn't lost on anyone that the year 2020, and that means it's been exactly 21 years since the Car- Cargill crisis between Pakistan and India. I say exactly 21 because it actually all unfolded right in the May-June timeframe, which I think is pretty interesting. So I wanted to trace the impact of this major historical event. But I imagine Cargill to be a very difficult topic to write on. What was your challenge? What was the challenge that confronted you during that process? I agree. Cargill is intriguing because it's a historical black box. We all know it happened, right? But what occurred exactly? So even if the crisis is taught in schools, the narrative is fuzzy because of how overlapping and conflicting it is. And when I started this research, I was looking for the facts. And um, there are just a handful of sources when it comes to Cargill like primary sources, like news articles right. and secondary you sources. You mentioned sources. Now, these are literally the first thing one has to sort out when beginning research. The dreaded literature review, bibliography, the works. And uh, this is difficult because the process of selecting and using sources, any source, is so very daunting, isn't it? Oh yeah, definitely. What were some of the problems then that you faced when selecting and using your sources? I mean, what sources have you used to collect this information? I see that you have quoted a lot of secondary sources. 
um, from prominent veteran journalists in Pakistan, but they're still accounts, they're still secondary sources. So what goes into assessing the veracity of a secondary source? And with those doubts, how do you incorporate them into your research in a balanced manner? Those are all great questions. So I basically, a lot of the material that I relied on was for secondary sources. I used Peter Lavoie's book on the asymmetric asymmetric warfare in South Asia, Nassim Zara's From Cargill to the Coup. John Gill last year wrote a wonderful article called Provocation, War and Restraint Under the Nuclear Shadow. And then, of course, I relied on uh, Pervez Musharraf's own memoir called In the Line of Fire. And I really had to immerse myself in this literature, and I determined the veracity of fact by cross-checking narratives. I think I was lucky enough to be surrounded by South Asian scholars and regionalists as I wrote this, and I was also able to cross-check some of the fuzziness with them as well. And finally, I was writing this piece for an international audience, which to me at least necessitates two things. First, I tried to explain everything as I went, as if the reader didn't know anything at all. And secondly, I was checking biases as I went along because, as you know, Priya, good research comprises empirical support and it should not reflect any sort of bias. So that's a little bit about the method. That makes sense. So, but aside from the challenges you faced while writing, I want to know how your work aligns with your research interests. So the what drew me to the cargo crisis is that it lies at the nexus of several of my research interests. I currently work in the realm of nuclear policy, and the occurrence of Cargill dismissed this common Cold War notion that conventional fighting could not occur between nuclear armed states. Basically, leading up to Cargill, the world had spent give or take 50 years thinking that two nuclear armed countries, which in the case of the Cold War was the United States and the Soviet Union, that they wouldn't fight each other. And then along comes 1999, and here we have India and Pakistan, two newly nuclearized countries, fighting each other. And that really piqued my curiosity. The other research area I'm super fascinated by is civil-military relations, and Cargill is a fantastic case study for this. It revealed this glaring disunity in Pakistani civil-military leadership. We saw, we see in Cargill, two institutions standing totally at odds with each other, and to this day, I think this conflict raises a question of whether civilian leadership and the military even have a common vision for um, Pakistan on the world stage or for India-Pakistan relations. And it highlights this danger of fractured decision making in Pakistan or in any country, really. That's striking. Um, and on a side note, I'm quite happy with how you factored in the good old Cold War conception, detente, and the nuclearization of South Asia. Um, but coming to the point where you mentioned the ambiguities of decision-making in Pakistan, um, it makes sense that we move on to the historical background of the Kargil crisis. What was the Kargil crisis? Um, you know, the important developments of the time, the impacts on the domestic, regional and, uh, and foreign levels, all of that in the following segment. So, Rija, as in your article, let's start with the events of 1999. What happened exactly on the borders and in Pakistan? Well, um, let's start with what where Cargill is. Cargill is a small town in the state of Jammu and Kashmir. 
And in a nutshell, Pakistan's Northern Light Infantry troops occupied the heights above Kargil. And this ignited a limited war that eventually resulted in a return to the status quo. Basically, Pakistani soldiers were climbing the peaks of Kargil across the line of control in early October 1998. And this was happening at the same time that the Pakistani government was planning a momentous Pakistan-India summit in Lahore. And Sharif, most of my research had been totally uninformed of this. And the scope and the danger of this operation was not apparent to the Pakistani government until May 17, 1999. But by this time, it was just too late. Fighting was already underway. Withdrawal could not occur quietly or easily. The peace process was totally sabotaged. And Indian authorities at the time of the operation assessed that the trespassers were Mujahideen. However, it soon became clear that the infiltrating force was not comprised of civilian militants, but rather it was entirely NLI troops. But Pakistan continued to use the cover story of militants. They let India believe that this was the truth. And this defiance um, that was shown to the civil government, coupled with international pressure, led to Sharif colliding with the military. Um, later, due to public pressures and accusations of undermining the country's military, Sharif had to accept that the Kargil assault, assault was authorized by the Pakistani government. However, I think this had already put him at loggerheads with Musharraf, who was his chief of army staff at the time. I not, I might not quote him exactly, but he wrote in his autobiography that while dealing with Kargil, the prime minister, who Sharif had exposed his mediocrity, and set himself on a collision course with the army. Sharif was exacerbated by Musharraf in the process and was trying to dismiss him when his government was overthrown by a coup. And this coup propped General Musharraf into power for the next decade in Pakistan. That's an incredible turn of events. Thank you for giving us such a good summary of the crisis. And you probably don't know this, but I've been scribbling down my notes ferociously as you were speaking on this mm -hmm. topic. So to head in a more complex direction, we start with the second part of our program, which has to do with your analysis as you have developed it in your piece, and also some of my questions. So let's proceed to part two, the analysis. So Rija, I think our listeners would like to know why, as per your research, the Kargil plan was hacked. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, according to my research, the Kargil conflict emerged from a, discon a disconnect between Pakistan civilian government and military leaders. Like I was saying a little while earlier, the prime ministers of Pakistan and India at the time, Nawaz Sharif and Bajpai, had between the two countries in 1998. But at the same time, this handful of Pakistani army generals were apprehensive about the detente policy that the civilian leadership was pursuing. This cabal of generals was galvanized by Operation Mahdut that led to India's annexation of the Siachen Glacier in 1984. So not, not that far, um, only about like a little over 10 years before Kargil happened. The army had given past Pakistani leaders similar proposals for an infiltration in the Kargil region. But the plans had always been shelved, and some analysts believed that the blueprint of attack 
was actually revived by Pervez Musharraf when he was appointed chief of army staff in October 1998. Musharraf and the generals titled this operation Gohe Baima, translates roughly to mountaineer, and Gohe they Bema. intended to avenge. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was a, a good attempt on my part. And they attended to avenge the Siachen incident. They wanted to resuscitate this lagging insurgency in Kashmir. And this was an opportunity to internationalize the Kashmir issue. That's solid research, Raja, and so well narrated. So now that we may know the rationale behind this event, what would you, or rather a series of events, what would you assess about its domestic repercussions that unfolded during and in the aftermath of the crisis, including the toppling of an entire democratic government? But what glaring problems do you think were revealed by the developments surrounding Kargil? So that's a great question. I think, well, this definitely was not the first time that we saw this disconnect between civil and military leadership but it became super apparent for the first time. And I guess against the backdrop of the Lahore peace process, it was even more stark. And to this day, we just don't know if the civilian leadership and the military have a Because the planners of Cargill made really gross misjudgments in underestimating India's response, and they overestimated what the international community's response would be as in they thought that it would be a lot more sympathetic. There's this one article that I relied on um, written by Dr. Nikin Pegahi, and she explained that, sh- that they, ex- they suspected that Indian troops were fatigued by counterinsurgency efforts in Kashmir, that there might be US support for Pakistan since India had tested nuclear weapons first the year before, and that President Clinton's personal life predict- predicament might even be a distraction or a window of opportunity. I concluded that I think miscalculations like these are political judgments that could benefit from civilian inputs. That's amazing. And you've actually answered part of the next question, which was, you know, I was going to discuss about the very significant, obvious international spillovers at this event, both in the region and internationally. So as for your analysis, what do you think were the effects of this on regional security and Pakistan's diplomatic status in the wider world? You're right, I did kind of touch on it, but I can start with that point. I think although India was the regional pariah just the year before, because it had nuclearized the subcontinent first, all of a sudden with Cargill, this label was transferred to Pakistan. And now in the aftermath of Cargill, there is a paradigm shift that's evident in U.S.-India relations. As the United States demonstrated clear support for the Indian position. And meanwhile, the fate of U.S. Pakistani relations continues to hang in the balance, despite Pakistan's cooperation in any in any global war. But since this paradigm shift, I feel like Pakistan has worked really hard to expand its partners and alliances and try to elevate and reestablish its significance in the international community. Pakistan has definitely played the the Afghan peace process to its advantage. Pakistan has definitely deepened alliances with countries like China, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates, realizing and recognizing the need to have other countries that could play an intervening role in Pakistan's favor, another country that could have the connections, the clout, the interest to just help Pakistan if ever need be. 
And how do you think that this change status of Pakistan um, affects its position today in terms of its leverage in disputes with India and the cause for Kashmir? Well, I guess for this question, I would refer to an analysis that Ashley Tellis wrote. And he said that one of Pakistan's key takeaways from Cargill was that it should continue seeking to calibrate the heat of the Kashmir insurgency as the only realistic military option versus India post Cargill. And this an analysis like this one kind of shaped the tone of future crises. I think since Cargill, Pakistan has faced the ebb and flow of censure from American and Indian policymakers for being a safe haven to terrorists, quote unquote. Um, and even worse, this implication has made it easy for India to credibly lay blame on the Pakistani military as soon as a terror attack occurs, however much Pakistan may deny it. Like you probably remember from last year, in the throes of the Pulwama crisis in February, um, India was able to credibly conduct a Balakot airstrike without significant criticism, um, despite a lack of concrete evidence that Pulwama was directed by the Pakistani military. So basically, it all boils down to the fact that even if the government's not involved in perpetrating attacks, Cargill created a huge trust deficit, such that like, Pakistan is suspected of sponsoring certain proxies every single time, and it adds fuel to fire. It helps India deflect international attention away from the Kashmir issue. And finally, I think one other huge um, problem that arises is that every time progress is made between the two countries, it's it, we we're all skeptical. We just we just are unsure if another Cargill will come around and ruin this momentum for peace. Because Cargill happened right in the midst of the Lahore peace process, and then in the years to come, we had um, the 2008 Mumbai attacks that happened also in the midst of another peace process. Derailing peace processes is never promising, and Cargill was definitely one of the first catalysts of, of, of this like huge trust, trust deficit. So I hope that answers that <laughs> to some extent. That was, that was such a great answer, and honestly, um, I did not expect you to make a parallel to a to an event or to a series of events that happened so recently, including the Pulwama incident and, and the Mumbai attacks and the likes. This is such a great discussion, Raja. I'd like to thank you again for making this happen. No, having me. I had a lot of fun talking to you as always. This was, this was just brilliant. And everybody, to all our listeners, to follow Raja's work, please follow the link in the show notes of this podcast and get in touch with her for more inquiries about her existing and upcoming projects. Rija, as usual, an absolute pleasure. We'll continue talking on WhatsApp now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for tuning into Zeitgeist. I cannot stress enough as to how much your patronage, support and activity on our page means to us. Please like and share our page on Instagram at CCRT Collect and keep following us for more content. Drop in your feedback and comments on our posts and previews and DM us to get featured. Next week, we bring to you the incredible Palak Sharma, who will talk about her article on labor policy and economics in India in the backdrop of COVID-19. I promise you, this is one episode you should not miss. Stay connected to The Collective and keep listening to Zeitgeist.